Welcome to the Old Past Podcast. I'm Pastor Benjamin Hicks in London, Ontario, and I'm joined today by two guests. First, Michael, would you introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Michael Spangler, a minister in Greensboro, North Carolina. And Cody, would you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Cody Justice. I live in uh, Hurricane, West Virginia with my wife and our two boys and our daughter. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Cody. And uh, it's uh, an exciting opportunity that we have today because for those who've been following this podcast, we've been going through the life and times of William Ames, not uh, because we're interested in history for its own sake, but because here on the Old Past podcast, we're seeking to discern the work of God in our in faithful men uh, from our past so that we can seek to discern the truths of the scripture and the wisdom that the Lord revealed to them. And that was all prelude, of course, to discussing the work that uh, we're going to be covering over a number of weeks, and that is the marrow of theology, sometimes called the marrow of divinity. Um, today, I think we more often use theology than divinity, but in any case, this is a very important work in the history of Reformed theology, and we saw that it was formative not only in the history of English Puritanism, but also on the continent in Holland, but as well in New England in particular, where it became a formative text of theology. But the real reason we're covering it is because it's my favorite book outside the Bible that uh, it's been, the Lord has used to encourage me in my faith to uh, deepen my knowledge of the scripture. So I'm very thankful for you brothers uh, joining me on this. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read a little bit from uh, the dedica uh, dedication that he wrote at the beginning of this book. Um, it's called A Brief Forewarning of the Author Concerning His Purpose, which is an interesting uh, way to introduce something. But um, he basically is introducing various responses to his critics, knowing that having a bit of a controversial ministry, contesting with different people, there would be some people who would criticize him. So uh, he gives various reasons uh, why people might criticize. And uh, so he says in the second paragraph on page 69, if you have uh, the print edition, some people, including those not unlearned, dislike this whole manner of writing that is of placing the main body of theology in a short compendium. They ask for great volumes in which they may establish themselves or wander about as they will. But I intend this for all those who have neither the ample leisure nor the great skill to hunt the parsonage in mountain and forest. Their situation calls for showing them the nest itself or the seat of what they are pursuing without ado. So, um, I love that uh, paragraph, paragraph because it was a bit of the situation I found myself in seminary. I was seeking to grow deeper in my understanding of Reformed theology. And you have these massive tomes of theology, and sometimes I found myself getting a little bit lost in the weeds. But for me, a very sh a short, practical, concise, systematic theology like this, written um, in the uh, high watermark of Puritan um, doctrine, it, it was very helpful for me. Um, just a, as a, a way of getting started, Cody, um, when I asked you to take a look at this first chapter, did you have any thoughts about the style or 
or the manner of writing, which um, he says might be despised by those who are more learned or scholarly? No, certainly. I what stuck out to me uh, very very quickly from the beginning was how simple uh, his writing style was. I mean the the chapter is really two small pages and I think it was what a dozen, maybe 13, 13 paragraphs um, and quite a few scripture proofs. So that stuck out to me uh, from the beginning. I did not read that forewarning. I must confess I skipped, I skipped over that and just went straight to, to chapter one. So I've read, I've read parts of Calvin and uh, Robert Raymond. I've read most of uh, the volume one of Turretin. Uh, certainly this is much, much, <laughs> much more concise than a, than a Turretin. How about yourself, Michael? Did you have any reflections on this and maybe how it compares with other systematic theologies? Oh, I would just add that I think it's the height of wisdom to be able to summarize something clearly. It takes a great mind with a full understanding of the topic. And Ames has done a really useful, but also quite impressive work in distilling what could be large volumes into just a few sentences. Yeah, and I, and I love out that idea that, um, especially for ministers of the gospel or for students of theology, but really any Christian, right? Um, when we come to the scriptures and we come to people who are wanting to instruct us in the scriptures, then uh, sometimes we have very practical needs or sometimes very simple needs. And I, I love that idea of he's trying to bring us right to the point. There are, of course, on any given point he's addressing, there may be all manner of objections, all manner of nuances. And I don't think he's um, he is despising those who would be in a position to get more in depth. But sometimes you just simply need him to give a loose and clear answer. And uh, in my opinion, often the vindication of his point is it's found in another place, not so much through a laborious argument, but by vindicating it by showing the, the fruit of an earlier insight. So um, just to say, I think that I remember I was showing it to one friend and he was saying, this is actually too simple. It feels like I'm reading a catechism. It feels like. This is just too too basic. There has to be more to it than that. Well, uh, in my opinion, that a slow, meditative reading of this work, words that are chosen, and in particular the texts that are chosen and what is drawn from the text, in my experience, has been very helpful for understanding the scriptures and understanding theology. So, I encourage readers. If on the surface reading you think that this is this is too simplistic, then I, I encourage you to stick with it until you start to see. Some of the wisdom of it. So, um, Cody, can you uh, explain for our audience uh, how, what is the purpose of this chapter, the first chapter? And um, maybe you can, you mentioned some other systematic theologies. Does it differ at all from maybe how other people have begun their systematic theologies? Sure. Well, I think the, the title sums it up well. He's defining. Um, theology uh, I, let me i want to come back just to, to a point previously and I'll, I'll i'll swing back to that uh, i should say it does remind me of of uh, the shorter catechism but also cartwright um cartwright has a systematic theology in a catechetical format which is very plain 
practical and pious. So those are three words that I would use to describe it. Uh, and this, at least from the first reading, and then I've dipped into other sections that you've mentioned to me personally, uh, it seems very similar to that. Um, and I, I very much appreciate that. So then contrasted with a Turretin, there are times I, I read a, a Turretin and I am just, I'm, I'm thinking, what is he saying? And then I have to break out you know, Muller's Dictionary of Latin Latin and other other terms, and I'm trying to figure all that out and parse parse through that. And of course, there's there are a lot of technical distinctions with him. So I think um, something like this is is excellent, um, as has already been said, to set forth the simplicity of um, of theology. Yes, and uh, so the definition or nature of of theology. Um... Now, Michael, uh, maybe I'll, I'll kick this off, off to you. How is it that he defines theology? And um, maybe what, we'll begin with that. I mean, there's, we're going to see that he doesn't line up exactly with, uh, with some other uh, definitions, but maybe we can first just, why don't you just describe his own logic as you see it? Uh, how does he define theology? Why does he define it that way? And uh, then perhaps we can we can weigh his um, his definition. But first, I just want to give us a sense for what is his reasoning. Uh, maybe start there. Yes, he says that it's the doctrine of living to God, and he explains that it's doctrine because it has to be taught um, from principles, and it doesn't just come from nature. We have to learn it. But then it's the doctrine of living, and it's proper that it's living um, from the testimony of Scripture that God teaches us things so that we might do them. Um, he speaks, he quotes in the, very sec in the second sentence from John 6, 68, the words of eternal life. That's why we go to Christ. Who else has the words of eternal life? Or it, as it... Uh, apostles call it the words of this life, Acts 5.20. And we're to live for God or to God, Romans 6, etc. This is the whole point of learning about God. And this is important in contrast to a definition of theology that would make it out to be a purely intellectual discipline. It's evident because he's writing a book, he's not neglecting the intellect. But there's a greater goal, and it's the formation of I'd say of the whole person, but he makes it very specific of the will. Hmm. That there's an aim primarily at the will and the change of the life. Theology is for the whole life to be lived according to the will of God. Very good, Michael. That's, that's very helpful. And um, remember, I'm first reading of this, finding it a bit disorienting. Uh, it's almost like um, you know, you're, uh, uh, the whole frame of reference is a bit reversed from what you're commonly thinking of, because you think about uh, other kinds of sciences, let's say sociology, geology, uh, biology, and so forth, all these different sciences. And our way of thinking about it ordinarily, I think, is that we have an object of study and we're accumulating knowledge about it. So, yeah, that's how we think 
disciplines. And uh, I think we're we're jumping into the middle of a bit of a of a philosophical argument as well as a theological argument. Um, if you if you were interested, you you could pick up his book Eupraxia, which is an interesting sort of prologue or introduction to this book, where he argues um, for a Ramist or um, that, that school of thought that develops from Peter Ramus, which argues that all science and all disciplines really have a practical import. All of them aren't studied for their own sake in order to acquire knowledge, but always towards a greater end of what you're going to do with the knowledge. So that's part of what's going on here. But he's very clear that he wants to argue that there's a unique way in which theology is practical. Um, I'm going to try to refer to a particular quotation from later on in the chapter where he um, where he talks about this. So in, uh, near the end in, in point 12, uh, this practice of life is so perfectly reflected in theology. There is no precept, universal truth relevant to living well in domestic economy, morality, uh, political life or lawmaking does not rightly pertain to theology. Theology therefore, is to us the ultimate and the noblest of all exact teaching arts. It is a guide and master plan to our highest end, sent in a special manner from God, treating of divine things, tending towards God, and leading to God. So there's something about theology where he says it, it is the most practical, it is the most oriented towards the noblest of ends, which is the life lived to God. And what do you think about that, Cody, when you uh, when you reflect upon that, did you find it all disorienting or at all uh, divergent from your expectation on a chapter like this? Well, his definition, um, I had to to follow his the way he was working through his points. It seems to me he begins with a simple statement and then he, he adds a little bit. It gives you another flavor, adds a little bit. And he's showing you these different angles. And so by the time you get to the end of the chapter, uh, he's, he's added more on it than what he initially stated. And so that, that forced me to go back and, and say, okay, what particularly has he added in this, in this paragraph that's unique? Um, so I'm not, I'm not quite used to that myself, but um, I, I found it profitable for me. I will say when he, uh, emphasize it emphasizes it as practical one of the questions that comes to my mind is what what do people think that word means practical um, we maybe people who read theology have an idea of what he means but I, I would wonder if uh, people who are not so familiar with theology and they would hear that emphasis are they going to immediately associate the word practical with external acts, um, activities of the body? Um, because I think that that would be a mistake. Uh, if you look at paragraph nine, it's at the end of the first line. Uh, it's the spiritual work of the whole man. So it seems to me implicit in that is Ames has in view, obviously, the, the whole man, which would include the inner man. Now, if he's emphasized from the outset that it's it's living and it's it's practical, then does it not follow? He's he's obviously viewing the inner man in the acts of the inner man, and that's 
included in what he means by practical. It's an interesting question, Cody. Michael, do you want, want to take a stab at that before I, I uh, offer some thoughts? Yes, I was actually just looking in the Maastricht. If you want a large expansion on aims, Maastricht's following him very closely, but he takes some of these questions and spends a lot of time working them out. The question of practical, yes, it's not just about the outward man. It actually is first about the soul. Now, if you look at Ames, he says that it deals particularly with the will. So number nine um, in this first chapter says, excuse me, um, it certainly has to do with man's will. And it follows that the first and proper subject of theology is the will. Well, I think there's something to that. But the Maastricht is a little fuller and gives, I think, a better answer in which he says that it's occupied first with the forming of the intellect. This is volume one of the Maastricht, page 104. And second, with the forming of the will or the heart. And finally, the forming of the whole life in each and every one of its human acts that they directed to God as much as possible. For skill in theology is the habit of the whole person by which he is brought to possess God and to act according to his will and for his glory. And he quotes 1 Thessalonians 5.23, that we're to be sanctified in all our parts, in our soul, spirit, and body. But then he goes on to say, especially the will, which is the principium that commands all spiritual actions. So he gets to where um, Ames does in showing the importance of the will. It can never be left out. But I think here there's a greater fullness. We're to love God with all our mind and with all our will. And then, of course, from that with all our actions. So I hope that helps explain the breadth of this term practical. Yeah, I think that's that's hugely helpful, Mike. And I'm glad you brought up the contrast with Van Master. I think that as we could go through this, we'll see that there's a lot of commonalities and and shared commitment to this method of doing theology. It's interesting that when I first came into the Reform faith, um, there were uh, certain ministries that helped me that maybe were more from a theonomist point of view that were uh, emphasizing things of practical family life, uh, headship of the, of the father and, and the husband how that works in family life and coming maybe from more of a Arminian background where there may be some um, Arminian evangelical background. There's a bit of antinomianism, a little bit of not appreciating aspects of practical living. That was refreshing. And then at a certain point, I began to see that some of that kind of ministry is a bit uh, spiritually barren. That it, it tends towards uh, not the actual spiritual life of genuine conversion and, and reliance upon the Lord and, and you know, marks of grace and uh, especially focusing upon the heart of, of the gospel and uh, began to appreciate that whole dimension of, of Christianity. When I came to, to um, William Ames, it seemed to me that there is a happy marriage between some of these, these emphases in those two traditions. If the, the tendency in some theonomist or 
or similar ministries is towards a kind of uh, dry external legalism and the tendency towards some experiential Calvinist is maybe neglect of that. I think William Ames is trying to say that it's it's holistic, right? That, um, that none of these should be neglected because it's all important in its place. Um, and in the, in the same way, I would say that with just two uh, pages, it seems like he's resolving a lot of these, um, these uh, almost insuperable problems that have plagued Reformed theology in the 20th century around two kingdoms theology, right? Which can sometimes um, uh, break down these things in an unhelpful way. And Ames, I think, draws proper distinctions while integrating both the present life and the life to come, and you barely even notice it. It's almost as though scriptural themes are connected and you're not you're not even hung up about that. Yeah, Michael, I saw you nodding a little bit. Does any of that resonate with your own your own thinking on this chapter? I appreciate what you're saying. I thought the same concerning preaching. There is there are some types of experimental preaching that are not practical in the fullness of it in that they focus merely on the heart and on the inner aspects of experience. But the whole life, and not just of man, but of families, of the church, of societies, needs to be and is addressed by God. It's a whole theology, the whole of life. And we, because of sin, are so liable to not get the whole picture and to turn the Christian life into something much smaller and narrower than God intends it to be. Very good, Michael. Cody, any, any thoughts along these lines? Yeah, I appreciate you raising those things, Benjamin. Certainly, I would agree with uh, some of those sentiments concerning uh, maybe the broader theonomist uh, movement you know, a number of years ago. I was heading that direction um, and have certainly come back from that to, I think, a far more balanced uh, view and emphasis. And so it's it's always... Um, I suppose it is a bit of a balancing act. You know, we even like me leading family worship with my family. There are instances where I'm trying to speak primarily to state of the heart than other instances where I'm, where I'm trying to give very basic application, something that, that we can do. Um, and you have, you have to have both. And Ames does, I think, get at that in a measure at the beginning of paragraph eight uh, where he says, although it is within the compass of this life to live both happily and well. Uh, and there, it seems to me in that paragraph, he has in view earthly life. So he's not denigrating earthly life. However, the second, uh, the second sentence, he puts things in their proper order. And he says, what chiefly and finally ought to be striven for is not happiness, which has to do with our own pleasure. And I read that as he means in this life but goodness, which looks to God's glory. And so yeah, I think it is very important. You have all the parts, but you put them in their proper order. So you don't, you don't use the primary to denigrate or dismiss what's secondary. And you must also be aware of, of the secondary supplanting what is primary. And you can do that you know, expressly, but you can also do that, uh, I think, by your, by your emphases over time. I mean, I've seen that 
myself, you know, in churches where grace is so preached to such an extent that then you inevitably have problems with antinomianism and, you know, people are not uh, obeying the Lord and that's not good. So uh, absolutely. I, I think that there needs to be a holistic approach to, to theology. Thank, thank you for drawing that out, Cody. That, to me, I thought that was one of the most um, satisfying parts of this chapter, right? Where he talks about the relationship of God's glory and our happiness. And um, I think that uh, perhaps uh, today, and I, I noticed, Michael, you were posting upon this not, not that long ago on your Facebook about the role of uh, kind of healthy self-love in the Christian I think obviously you're writing about that because you think that some sometimes it's misunderstood. Can you maybe speak about uh, what you believe about that and then see if that is comporting with what Ames is writing in that section? Yes, I'm glad to try. Um, again, in paragraph eight, he contrasts living happily and living well. Uh, ben Maastricht deals with the very same thing, and I think what he says is helpful. He says, the former concerns the glory of God, the latter our salvation. So he has it in the order of first living well and then living happily. And this brings the question, why am I a Christian? Is it for my own benefit or is it for God's glory? Do I come to Christ in order to be saved or in order to give God glory? Now, Ames is right to say God's glory. God's glory. And this is so helpful. If we make things first about our unhappiness, then we'll be disappointed. We will won't understand either that sometimes for God's glory, he removes our happiness. Think of the extreme case of spiritual desertion in which a true Christian has no sense of saving grace, though he does possess saving grace. Psalm 88 be an example of a man spiritually deserted. However, then Maastricht again comes back with more further qualifications and I think are useful, and I'll share one or two. He says, may someone act for the sake of his own salvation as if that were his highest sin. You know, this is useful for preachers. We tell people, flee from the wrath to come. Come to Christ. There are pleasures at God's right hand. We are appealing to self-love. Is that right? Should they think that way? The Heidelberg Catechism, as you know, always asks this question, what's in it for you? And Maastricht defends that. He says, I respond that it is entirely permitted because it is undoubtedly permitted to act for the sake of God since by the very fact of acting for his salvation, he has God as his highest end. So if you are seeking your salvation as the only goal of your life, you will by that very fact seek God's glory as the only goal of your life. And this really is the one of the great wonders of salvation that God has purposely tied together his glory and our salvation so that in seeking the one, we are seeking the other. That, that's very helpful, Michael. Thank you for sharing that. And, uh, and I don't think, I think you're, you're correct. He's not posing a dichotomy of these things as though you have to choose or you have to give so much emphasizes but it is saying that these things are harmonious they're they're unified and it, when when regarded greatly we are going to see the, the the glory of god as a, of course the the ultimate right 
that's what contextualizes the other, the, the pleasure of, uh, of the Lord's people. And um, yeah, as you say, like something like spiritual desertion, right? In the moment of it, when you're forsaken of the Lord, it's it, it or in your own experience that is, and you, you feel that He's withdrawn from you. Then uh, what what greater burden and sorrow for the child of God who who yearns for for Christ and yearns for a sense of His presence? And yet, if you understand that even that has a has a higher purpose, as the Lord is refining you, as bring you to a greater dependence upon Him and finding more sweetness in Him. And you come to see that. I do think, Cody, that um, I think he is comprehending the earthly life and the and the heavenly life, but I don't think he's, he's strictly demarketing as a, it's this life that is based on pleasure and the future life, which is not. I think he has in view that ultimately the um, that it's unified. I'm trying to find that part where he defines uh, the, the temporal nature of this life. Maybe you guys have it in front of me. But he says at one point that it's in essence, oh yeah, there in verse, uh, verse seven, paragraph seven, this life in essence remains one and the same from its beginning to eternity. Um, and he quotes uh, a number of passages from John's gospel in his epistle, particularly at John 3, 36, he who believes in the son has eternal life. And so um, I know, I know, like I've been reading um, some works that, do play on some dichotomies in that way, the temporal life and the eternal life and so forth. But I think as he's dealing it in, in uh, that cast of mind, he's showing that there is a unity to it. Right? Yes, you're, there are aspects to our existence in right now in, in the present life that are different than the fullness of that in the, in the life to come. But in essence, especially in John's gospel and in John's epistle, there's a unity. And so for that reason, the, uh, the glory of God is implicated in both as well as pleasure and, and the goodness of the, um, of the believer himself. One of the things that for just a couple of things that strike me just when I was looking at this again, um, if you contrast it with other systematic theologies, I think a couple things would, would come to mind. So um, there's a sort of unfolding of this basic thought. You could almost say that the entire book of the marrow is an unfolding of the first sentence throughout the whole book, because what he's going to be doing, he's going to be showing not that he's adding new things, I, I think, but rather he wants to contend that, that in this one principle, if you unfold it, refract it out from that, then, then and everything else in this whole systematic is contained in it. And one of the interesting things that, that uh, follows from that is that the doctrine of revelation is almost in is, is not explicitly stated until fairly late on, right? So uh, ordinarily, a lot of these uh, a lot of these systematics in their prolegomena or introduction, they're going to be dealing with that first second chapter, first second section. In this, the just trying to look here briefly at the yeah, the holy scripture is not covered until the thirty fourth chapter. Um, and uh, by that point, he's, he's fairly far down in his in his treatise, and he's really talking about there the its relevance in the application of salvation, as I recall. Um, but having said that, I think that uh, even reading in this way, you can infer certain things of what he's saying about uh, about revelation. 
and uh, maybe I'll, uh, I'll throw, I'm trying to exactly phrase, understand how to phrase this, but um, the ruthlessly practical nature of this, right? Uh, what might be some of the ways in which this upends current trends in our, in our reform movement, right? How they handle scripture, how they handle theology, how they handle preaching. Um, do either, either of you in particular want to take a, a start at that? Because I think it's, it's an important um, implication of this work. I'll call him Michael. How do, what do you think about that? Sure. I think most obviously it has applications for preaching. No wonder in Maastricht's book on preaching, he quotes Ames. They're of one mind in this. And he says that the, I think he's quoting Ames. He says, the practice of piety is the soul of the sermon. Mm. A sermon is nothing if not practical. Indeed, a sermon without application is no sermon. What is the point of the doctrine if not to lead to a changed mind, changed heart, changed life. Sermons that are not practical are a plague in our churches. And we actually have a besetting sin in the reformed churches through a variety of honestly novel and strange doctrine in the 20th century that has been built up to try to convince us that it's better not to have application or to have little application or in the words of one leave the application to the holy ghost mm -hmm. you know the holy ghost leaves the application to the preacher mm -hmm. not with the power that's the holy ghost prerogative of course we can't make men change but our duty is to use all the resources we have to persuade them to serve god if we're not doing that, we're not doing our duty as ministers. Amen, brother. I think that that's so vital. And when I, when I think about some of the ways in which people fall into this trap, maybe it would be, here would be one trap that maybe people fall into. And is this. So perhaps at this dwelling on application, dwelling upon uh, the relevance of this to the audience, they, they may say, well, this is man-centered because Ought we not to focus on God? Ought we not to focus on the glory of Christ, and the plan of redemption? And you can trace it out. You can talk about it this way. You can talk about it that way. You can talk, develop this or that through the scripture. And really, isn't it uh, more honoring to God when we're, do, when we're just focusing on the objective truths of the word of God? And let, let me uh, share with you some, uh, a challenge to that. It came to me as I was reflecting on this today. That in, in an odd way, isn't that the most man-centered way to do it? Because it is putting God as the object of scrutiny, the, the object of taking in, right? And what is it doing? It's putting God essentially in the dock of like, here is the, the panorama of things that are true, and we are just to stand over this and observe. Right? What Ames is challenging us with is, is really is the other way around. God is the one who is uh, over us. And what is he doing to us through his word, right? So one might think and say, how can you say that the proper subject of theology is the human will? The human will is this tiny little thing in this, this huge cosmos. And how can you say, well, we need to not treat God himself as proper object, treat the will. Well, I don't think Ames is, is neglecting the doctrine of God. He's not neglecting them at all. But what he's saying is that if, if you're going to think about it rightly, you need to say, that um, God, uh, uh, God is not the, the one who needs theology. 
God has given them theology in order that he would redeem his people. And so uh, it's it's precisely taking the, um, you know, it's it's revert. It's like looking through the, the telescope in the wrong direction or something. Looking through the, you know, like you're going to be missing the whole point of, of what you're what you're seeking to do. Does that make sense, Cody? I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not expressing it that well, but for me, uh, reading this day, I was really convicted about that. For myself, I need to make sure when I'm treating theology properly. Yeah, that makes sense. And the, the, the comments that uh, Michael made, I would agree with those. I Myself, it, it's a strange thing when a very popular preacher says that we're not to uh, leave the application to the Holy, to Holy Ghost. I'm not a minister as, as you men. Uh, I do. Closest I have to that is my family flock. So when we have family worship. But uh, I agree with those things. I mean, Paul says to Timothy, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Um, he says all creations are, are liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This testimony is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply. Because this is true of this particular people, Timothy, you must have a particular response to them. Now, if you think about the, the actual implications of that for today, um, I, I don't I don't think that that's actually very common at all. Um, I don't I don't think it's common. I think that there's a lot of getting into the maybe technicalities of things, historical context, you know, kind of dancing around, but um, never going on the attack of Red Lloyd Jones, his his work, Preaching and Preachers. And I, I like that work. And I, I liked very much how he he views preaching. He says it is it is an attack. Um, and I, I think when I read my Bible, that that's the case. So I'm very much in agreement with what's been said. Thank you for recommending that work. It's uh, that's a, it's a wonderful work as well. Yeah, I love, love Dr. Lloyd-Jones. I think, um, yeah, to connect with, with something that you said there, I think that it isn't just for preachers. I'm glad that Michael drew that out because I think we do want to encourage those in our audience who are preachers to take this aspect of their calling very seriously because there's so much in the, say, the reform world, but other, uh, other churches as well that is completely antithetical to proper understanding of theology, as I, I think Ames rightly characterizes it. But for all of us, right, how, when we open the Bible, right, and we come to the word of God in our own scripture reading, right? It's it's important not to get lost in all of the details and the great history of you know, the people of Israel or the particular words and sentences and, and even the doctrines, right? Unless we then take it to the next step and say, what is what is the word of God for? What is it? And um, I think that if the word of God were simply to communicate information in a correct understanding of um, metaphysics or, um, or other aspects which may be good in their place, then it would just be structured very differently. But when you read Jeremiah, you read Paul, you read the Proverbs, it's, it seems like it's very much directed towards this, right? Moving the will and, and moving the whole life, moving the whole man or woman into uh, what God would, would have him to, to enjoy, and to know, and to and to be 
to me, to me I think that uh, what, what Ames has helped me with is that when I sit down with a portion of scripture, whether I'm preparing a message for prayer meeting or a sermon or for family worship, or whether I'm, I'm simply applying it to myself, as indeed all, all Christians are called to do, and I think the, the tendency of, of this way of theology is to bring you face-to-face with God, face-to-face with the God who's addressing you personally. And I think that there's so many ways in which we neglect this so because it's it's that which is, I think, most devastating to our flesh and most devastating to Satan's kingdom. And so every manner of temptation will bring you away from that, right? Um, just to, to, to really strike strike that note brothers do you have anything to say about that Mike? no i agree fully with what you both said thank the lord thank the lord i maybe one thing will be useful to add is that one objection is that there are some doctrines that aren't practical you know people say well what about the attributes of god what about the persons of the trinity and we can say, yes, certain doctrines aren't practical in, the, in their genre or their genus. You know, if you preach the Ten Commandments, then that's a practical doctrine in substance. But the word practical isn't speaking in that way. It's telling us that there is a use for every doctrine. And if you're not using the doctrine of the Trinity to praise the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, to obey Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, to believe by the Spirit through the Son or in the Son and the Father. If you're not coming by the Spirit through the Son to the Father, you actually abusing the doctrine of the Trinity. And this really undercuts a lot of popular theology today. There are a lot of theological heads on sticks who want to talk and they talk and talk and talk and they use all sorts of big words and they like the fact that they know some Latin and Greek and and they love Thomas Aquinas and the man has his uses. But Thomas Aquinas' definition of theology was entirely intellectual. And Ames is purposefully rejecting that because the Bible does. Even the contemplation of God, which will be the centerpiece of life in heaven, the vision of God, will be a vision with love and that engages the whole soul. And if your theology doesn't do that today, it's bankrupt. Yeah, it's, it's so very, very important, Michael. And I think that, um, yeah, the, the, the ability of, of a, a, a proud person to take the most humbling and glorious of truths Right? And we, we should recognize this in all of us, right? We have this ability to take these holy things and to use them to elevate our own self-regard and not be actually brought to a proper posture before the Lord is very scary, very scary. So I hope that if our listeners are taking anything from this, they'll take that, that warning to heart, right? When you handle the word of God, what does it, what does it do for you, right? Is, are you brought to this place of really seeing the greatness of the glory of God, his holiness and his astonishing mercy? Does this humble you and bring you to a place where you're depending upon him? Because it, if ultimately these are just intellectual mind games, right, then it, 
not only is it um, is not going to profit, it's extremely dangerous, very dangerous, because it will be a danger to yourself and to others. And, and the condemnation is great for those who even teach theology and, and don't have the actual salvation of it. So thank you for that emphasis. And but what, before I forget, I just want to make this point. We are, we are going to cover the doctrine of God. And I, I think that people will be very... Uh, very surprised by it because today I think there are people who would try to make the doctrine of the Trinity practical, but they tend to distort it, right? So they'll say things like, well, um, the Trinity is practical because really there's an exact correspondence to human society as like the, like the family or the, or the nation in the, um, the, the Trinity of persons and the Godhead. And I think what we're going, going to find is in, in that and many other places, Ames is not only bringing a practical bent to his theology, but he's very precise, he's very careful, he's very cautious not to go beyond the, the bounds of sound biblical orthodoxy and proper use of, of uh, natural theology in its place. So what we're going to find is that I, I think it's going to answer a lot of contemporary problems with the doctrine of God, so stay tuned for that. Well, we're, we're about at our, our appointed time here, Cody. I wonder if perhaps you could I begin to bring this uh, conversation to uh, a close and um, maybe uh, sum up some of your own thoughts on things that have been said. And uh, maybe if, if you can lead into what are you uh, excited about in this series when you return to us next week? Yeah, I've, I appreciate the simplicity of Ames again, um, how he builds upon what he states in the beginning and shows you different perspectives of it. He calls it a doctrine, a discipline, an art uh, involving the whole man living well unto and enjoying God in accordance with his will and to his glory. And to that, I would say, amen. The, uh, where he notes in paragraph 10, uh, that theology is not speculative. Uh, for me, that's a, that's a huge point. I think that that is a big danger. Uh, which pertains to things we've already said, even things Michael was just saying. I appreciate uh, the zeal and the conviction there and the weight. And I think that should come through, especially in, in preaching. Um, and I think perhaps there may be a little, a little fear of that, of that weight and how that can shatter comforts and other things that are perhaps carnal. Uh, Michael raised too there, the, the, uh, the word uses, which immediately makes me think of you know, the Puritan sermons. And I've not read all their sermons, but I've read some. And one of the things I've noted with them um, is that they will, um, they'll establish the doctrine and then it doesn't take them long to do that. And then they're just the rest of the sermon. They're applying it in various ways. Very much appreciate that about them. Uh, I just, I appreciate that he says it is for God, it is unto God, it is for his glory. And so it's not a merely academic or intellectual exercise. Um, just briefly, I'll read a, a quote I love from, I don't know if, it, if you say his name, Lewis or, or Louis Gossin, uh, on some of these points. Here's the quote. It too often happens that a prolonged course of study devoted to the extrinsic parts of the sacred book by entirely absorbing the attention of the men who give themselves to it 
leaves them inattentive to Scripture's more intrinsic attributes, its meaning, its object, the moral power which displays itself there, the beauties that reveal themselves there, the life that diffuses itself there. By this absorption, the student stifles his spiritual life as a man and compromises final salvation. How can a man become acquainted with the temple when he has seen but the stones and knows nothing of the Shekinah, end quote. Um, I'm looking forward to that from Ames moving forward. That certainly seems to be uh, in agreement with at least what he stated here from the very beginning. beginning. Amen, go ahead. Wonderful quote. That's good. Michael, you want to br bring uh, us to a close with some concluding thoughts? Oh, I don't think I have anything more to add than that. This has been good for the soul, though. Very good. May we use it to live for God. Amen. That is our prayer for you listeners. and We ask for your prayers as well as we continue in this series. Give us wisdom as we seek to um, get deeper into this work. And just encourage you, make sure that you uh, pick up a copy of that. I think there are some free versions online as well. But uh, most importantly, get into the scriptures themselves because... Um, that's, that's ultimately the goal of all these things. And as we've said, to bring, bring you into communion with the Lord in Christ. So with that, thank you so much and God bless you.